Hello and welcome to Do The Film Thing, a film appreciation and analysis podcast. I'm your host, Victor Omoyo, and this is episode 9 of season 1. In this audio essay, we will explore the 2007 horror film The Mist, written and directed by Frank Darabont and adapted from the 1980 novella of the same name by Stephen King. The film stars an ensemble cast that includes Thomas Jane, Marsha Gay Harden, Andre Brower, Laurie Holden, Toby Jones, William Sadler, Jeffrey DeMunn, Francis Sternhagen, Sam Witwer, and Melissa McBride. When a mysterious mist of unknown origin engulfs the small town of Bridgeton, Maine, a large group of people find themselves stuck inside a local supermarket. They soon learn that numerous deadly and otherworldly monsters are hidden behind the mist, and fear and chaos quickly takes hold among the residents. Among the survivors is David Drayton, played by Thomas Jane, an artist who is trying to protect his eight-year-old son Billy, played by Nathan Gamble. While the horrifying creatures lurk outside of the supermarket, danger also begins to emerge from among the survivors. As the tagline of the film's poster says, Fear changes everything. The Mist was released in theaters in November 2007 and in color. When it was released on Blu-ray and DVD in the following year, a black and white version of the film was included in the two-disc edition. This version is Frank Darabont's preferred edition of the film, and having watched both versions, I too prefer the black and white's visuals, as it gives the film not only a modern Twilight Zone vibe, but also brings to much starker relief the increasing tension and horror that emerges from beyond and within the characters in the film. Plus, the black and white color palette also has the added benefit of enhancing the quality of the CG creature visual effects, which in color does not quite hold up as well today. What makes The Mist so effective as a horror film is that it functions as two types of monster movies. One about extraordinary and deadly creatures that attack hapless humans, and one about the all-too-familiar monsters that emerge from within us in the midst of despair. Among the survivors trapped in the supermarket, which is the main setting for the bulk of the film, we see how fear takes hold and affects the myriad folks that are faced with extreme circumstances. We also see how power is developed, shaped, and ultimately warped in response to terror as well. For example, in one of the earlier scenes in the film, where the mist begins to engulf the whole town, sometime shortly thereafter, David and a handful of other individuals, the simple-minded mechanic Jim, played by William Sadler, the grocery bagger Norm, played by Chris Owen, and the store's assistant manager Ollie, played by Toby Jones, go to the back room loading dock of the store to jumpstart the generator when the power goes out. David informs the small group that he heard a noise when he checked out the room earlier, a loud bang on the metal door from one of the creatures outside. When he tries to warn Jim and Norm not to go outside, Jim tells David to step aside and essentially projects all of his own insecurities onto David, saying that he's not going to listen to some college-educated, Hollywood-connected big-shot artist who's got the jitters. Even Norm, a punk teenage kid, calls David a coward, although he does not use that exact term. Confused by Jim's reaction, David asks if he's somehow threatened or impugned their masculinity, 
To which Ali, one of the more sensible and level-headed characters in the film, replies, quote, They've lost their sense of proportion. Out in the market, they were scared and confused. But back here, there's a problem they can solve, and they're goddamn gonna solve it. End quote. This is just one example of how characters in the film attempt to regain their sense of proportion and power in response to their fear. Jim and Norm try in their own way to assert their fortitude in a terrifying and bizarre situation that they have no real defense from. In their view and experience, macho bluster and bravado more or less gets the job done, so why would they think anything different? Of course, when Norm gets snatched up by a giant tentacle as soon as they open the door, Jim realizes that his macho sensibilities are not going to make him feel any safer. Rewinding back a bit, there is also another memorable scene that occurs even earlier, which centers on an unnamed woman, notably played by Melissa McBride, best known for her role as Carol Pelletier in the TV series The Walking Dead. She tearfully pleads to the rest of the survivors if any of them could accompany her into the mist so that she can go save her children whom she left at home. Like many of the other customers, this woman stopped by the store for what she thought was going to be a quick, routine trip. When nobody volunteers, including David, who tells the woman that he has his own child to look after, she condemns them for their, understandable, cowardice before walking out of the store and venturing into the mist, unarmed and seemingly into certain death. More on this later. Thematically speaking, one of the central conflicts in the mist pits rationality against faith, personified by who are arguably two of the worst representatives of both. David's next-door neighbor, the big city lawyer Brent Norton, played by Andre Brower, keeps a cool-headed rational demeanor in the face of the survivor's terrifying situation, smugly dismissive of David and company's first-hand accounts of the nightmarish creatures lurking outside. He continuously denies any talk of alien creatures lurking behind the mist as he tries to call for others to join him in devising a plan for rescue. On the side of Faith is Mrs. Carmody, played with aplomb by Marcia Gay Harden, an extremely religious and equally judgmental woman who views the mist and the creatures as a sign of God's wrath, straight out of the Book of Revelations. Utterly contemptuous of others, Mrs. Carmody openly muses to the other survivors that the monsters and the mist are there because mankind is too sinful, science is bad, fire and brimstone, double, double, toil and trouble, etc. Both Norton and Mrs. Carmody are strong in their respective convictions about the unfolding chaos and their supreme sense of denial is equally matched. Ali remarks in response to Norton's dismissiveness that, quote, you can't convince people there's a fire, even when their hair is burning. Denial is a powerful thing. End quote. Norton attempts to view the situation solely from a legal lens, trying to ascertain and gather the facts of the mist and what is really going on. However, Norton, perhaps trying in his own way to not let his own fears cloud his perspective, ironically chooses to ignore the very real dangers that await the survivors outside. In his view, rationality and facts are the order of the day, and there is a plausible explanation for everything. People talking about aliens and monsters, that's all science fiction, nonsense, non-existent. 
True to his principles, Norton and a small group of others venture out into the mist, unconvinced to the very end of what lies ahead. When David asks Norton what if he's wrong, Norton replies, quote, Then I guess the joke would be on me after all. End quote. We never see or hear from Norton or any of the other survivors who accompany him again. While Norton's stance on the crisis does not leave an impression on the rest of the survivors for the most part, the opposite is unfortunately true with Mrs. Carmody, whose increasing religious fervor over the unfolding mayhem slowly begins to win converts to her warped cause, one scared and desperate survivor at a time. It must be said, however, that although Norton was equally stubborn in his refusal to accept what was really going on in the town, he tried in his own arguably misguided way to find help for everyone else. Mrs. Carmody, on the other hand, is entirely selfish in her endeavors, intending to harness the scary situation as a means to assume leadership and dominion over everyone else. Early on in the film, she is fearfully praying in the store's bathroom, pleading that if she could save one life, that would prove that she pulled her own weight and thus can enter heaven. However, when one of the other survivors, a schoolteacher named Amanda Dunfrey, played by Lori Holden, tries to befriend and reassure her, Mrs. Carmody drops the coldest line in the film, telling the woman, quote, the next time I need a friend like you, I'll squat and shit one out. End quote. Well, isn't that just the Christian thing to say? Said no one ever. Mrs. Carmody's influence on the rest of the survivors continues to increase as they are forced to defend themselves against the monsters in the mist. At one point, after the survivors attempt to barricade the front of the store, which is made entirely of plate glass, they rest for the night. However, disaster strikes when a swarm of giant bugs and grotesque pterodactyl-looking creatures burst through the store's massive window, all attracted to the bright lights from within the building. While everyone is trying to fend off the awful creatures, one of the big bugs climbs on top of Mrs. Carmody, who only stands still, paralyzed with fright. Just when it looks like she's about to meet her maker, the bug spares her and flies away, much to her relief, and thus further fueling her own confirmation bias about the unfolding chaos. After everyone fends off the aliens, one of the survivors says that Mrs. Carmody was right because she said the monsters would arrive at night and somebody would die. More converts for the crazy lady's cause. Mrs. Carmody's growing influence on the survivors is an example of the logical fallacy post hoc ergo propter hoc, which is Latin for, after this, therefore, because of this. We have this woman spouting her wild doom and gloom views about the monster alien invasion, blathering on and on about how it's all a sign of divine wrath and apparently telling everyone else that the monsters will come for them at night. Lo and behold, when the monsters do appear, again, all of which burst through the window because they're attracted from the bright lights that are turned on in the store, all hell breaks loose. 
And with Mrs. We Have Jim Jones at Home Carmody emerging unscathed, it is easy for many of the other survivors, who are rattled to their wits' end from unrelenting terror and confusion, to turn to somebody who claims to have all the answers. Someone who can lend certainty and firm reassurance that they so desperately need, even though that same someone is instigating despair and terror among the survivors. Human nature is also called into question among some of the more sane-minded folks in the store. There's a scene where David, Ollie, Amanda, and another survivor, Dan, played by Jeffrey DeMunn, are discussing reasons for escaping the store to take their chances in finding safety elsewhere. The chief reason being Mrs. Carmody's growing cult leader status. Amanda tries to argue for the better angels of human nature, stating that people are basically good and decent and that most of the survivors aren't going to buy into Mrs. Carmody's brand of insanity. David replies that he already counted several converts to her cause and that he doesn't want to stick around long enough for the human sacrifice phase. David adds that people are good and decent as long as society is functioning the way it should, but that once the rules are taken away, that goodness and decency fades right away. Ali backs up David's point by saying, quote, As a species, humanity is fundamentally insane. Put more than two of us in a room, we pick sides and start dreaming up reasons to kill one another. Why do you think we invented politics and religion? End quote. As much as Amanda tries to prove otherwise, given what we see in the film, it is hard to argue against David and Ali's mutual stance. Sadly, yet unsurprisingly, David and Ali's cynicism on human nature proves well-informed as Mrs. Carmody and her flock sacrifice a young soldier, played by Sam Witwer who reveals information he heard involving a government military interdimensional research project that he implies is the reason for the mist and monsters appearing in the small town. Mrs. Carmody takes the young soldier's words as a confession, ordering her followers to stab the poor helpless man before throwing him out of the store, after which he is devoured by one of the giant creatures. Carmody reassures her newfound sheep that the sacrifice has satisfied the beasts outside and that they can rest for the day, but tomorrow might be a different story. Post hoc, ergo propter hoc, in action. Indeed, it turns out that for Mrs. Carmody, the next day is a different story when Ali shoots and kills her as he, along with David, his son Billy, Amanda, Dan, and an elderly schoolteacher, Irene, played by Frances Sternhagen, finally escape the supermarkets and brave the mist. Ali dies, however, as the rest of the group manages to escape in David's truck. Interestingly, during their exodus, the store manager who also tried to escape at the same time ends up losing his way in the mist, but finds his way back to the store, and the survivors actually let him back inside an indication that the insane spell that Mrs. Carmody held over the crowd inside has finally broken. Perhaps their better natures and sense has been restored. We are only left to wonder what ultimately became of them. It appears that, in this instance, these survivors who are left behind in the store have much to answer for, 
for they are left to face the ramifications of what they became in response to the extraordinary crisis they endured. One can be sure that most, if not all of these people, thought themselves to be good, upstanding, and friendly people that would have the mental and emotional alacrity to not be swayed by the outlandish words and twisted charisma of a mad, lonely soul like Mrs. Carmody. But yet, the monsters in the mist lay bare who those individuals truly are when all seems to be lost. And perhaps that is the scariest implication of all. Focusing away from the human elements for a moment, what adds to the terrifying nature of the mist is the sheer unknowability of the very nature of the extra-dimensional alien creatures that wreak havoc throughout the film. We catch partial glimpses of the gigantic creatures from their misty barrier. Colossal tentacles, giant bugs the size of a toddler, then at one point, horrible spiders that are the size of a dog, webbing up unfortunate victims, whose bodies eventually burst with legions of tinier spiders inside. Ugh. Then there are some that look like titan-sized praying mantises. It is as if no single unified form was decided upon for these creatures, or as if they all escaped the universe's most demented zoo. Between these nightmarish creatures and the equally nightmarish wannabe cult leader proselytizing the end times, every possible avenue of survival seemingly yields no chance for potential safety. It is truly a pick-your-poison situation indeed. Now, let's talk about that ending, though. The Mist is also a memorable film for its unforgettably infamous ending. In the last 15 minutes of the film, David, Amanda, Billy, Dan, and Irene take their chances driving south down the deserted, mist-covered roads in an attempt to look for a safer haven. Eventually, they run out of gas, and they are left with one impossible, unspeakable choice at that point. David, carrying Ali's gun, notes that there are only four bullets left, and there are five of them in their group. Seeing firsthand what those deadly alien creatures can do, they realize that they are faced with a fate worse than death. This is the end of the road for all of them, literally and figuratively. And what an end it is for each of them. Dan was actually the first person in the entire film to warn everyone else about the mist. He was the person who ran into the supermarket, sounding the alarm for everyone. Irene is an elderly woman who's lived a full life. What a miserable conclusion for her journey. Amanda is a young woman in the prime of her life, just moving to the small town of Bridgeton to continue her teaching career. And then there's Billy, David's eight-year-old son. To quote the actress Esther Roll as Florida Evans in Good Times, Damn, damn, damn. Four shots ring out. David utters a painful scream from the depths of his core, turning the gun on himself and fruitlessly pulling the trigger. But then, literally moments later, a tank emerges from the now dissipating mist. 
A convoy of survivors follows behind. Among them, the woman played by Melissa McBride, who earlier in the film ran into the mist to save her kids without anyone accompanying her. She looks impassively at the now distraught David, who screams, They're dead! For what? Earlier in this essay, I mentioned that rationality versus faith was one of the central conflicts in the film. Looking at Melissa McBride's character, to me, she is a singular representation of that very struggle. On the one hand, it would have been rational for her to stay in the supermarket for her own safety, even though it would have likely meant her kids not surviving. However, as a parent, this would have been an impossible course of action for her. McBride's character stepping into the mist for what we expect to be her guaranteed demise proves otherwise. It could be argued, perhaps from a certain point of view, that her taking a chance, taking a leap of faith if you will, in braving the unseen and unknown dangers of the mist early on, and perhaps having the faith to do so, however you interpret that, enabled her to save her kids and herself in the end. If we hold to this perspective, then when we look at David, for instance, we see that he and his son were just going to the store for what they thought was a quick trip. David's wife, Billy's mom, stayed at home. When David and company escaped the store, they briefly stopped by his home and they found his wife's body webbed up. She did not make it. Perhaps from a twisted and devious point of view, David's lack of faith, again, however you interpret that, in facing the mist head-on to return to his wife led to her getting killed. Yes, David made the rational choice to stay at the supermarket to protect his son, and for him as a parent, going into the mist to help the woman would have meant either A, leaving his son behind for his safety in the company of strangers and Mrs. Carmody, or B, putting his son in harm's way if he brought him along to help McBride's character. The film leaves it to us, the audience, to decide for ourselves what we would do if placed in that same situation. And speaking of rationality, as I mentioned earlier, we never heard from Brent Norton or any of the survivors who went with him into the mist since they left the store. What if he was right to do so? What if he actually did make it and found help for the survivors in the supermarket? What if that military convoy we see at the end of the film was summoned by Norton earlier? Perhaps he was successful in finding rescue. Or perhaps he and his group ended up having their bodies become spider motels. We will never know. Thinking about the ending further, I keep thinking about just how downright unsettling the timing is of David mercy killing the rest of his group, including his own son. What if they had just decided to wait for literally a couple more minutes? What if they decided to drive north instead of south? Could they have found rescue sooner? Or would they have just met their demise faster? What if they decided to remain in the supermarket after killing Mrs. Carmody? Would the rest of the survivors have come to their senses and been okay with David and his group sticking around? What if everyone at the supermarket died anyway? What if they didn't have Ollie's gun with them? What would they have done then? 
So many what ifs, so many possibilities, and yet, at the end, we are left emotionally gutted when the credits roll. The Mist was a modest box office success when it was released in November 2007, grossing $57.4 million worldwide against a budget of $18 million. The film received mostly positive reviews, with some mixed reception from some critics. The Mist was later adapted into a 10-episode TV series in 2017, which aired on Spike TV. It was cancelled after one season, and was received less favorably among audiences and critics alike. Frank Darabont's 2007 film is one of my favorite Stephen King cinematic adaptations, and it is a strong and gripping parable on human nature in the face of absolute horror. And that about wraps it up for this week's episode of Do The Film Thing. Thank you so, so much for listening. And if you enjoyed this episode, please tune in next Sunday for our Season 1 Finale, Episode 10. If you enjoyed this show, you can follow Do The Film Thing on social media via Instagram at Do The Film Thing. And you can also email the show at do the film thing at gmail.com. You can also listen to the Do The Film Thing podcast on various podcasting platforms including Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcast, iHeartRadio, and others. Once again, my name is Victor Omoyo, and remember to do the film thing always. Always.